This is your itinerary for travel and photography with your host, Rob Knight. Welcome to Your Itinerary. My name is Rob Knight, and this is episode number 38. And our episode this week features my interview with National Geographic photographer Jay Dickman. And Jay is one of those guys that you probably want to be when you grow up. He's been everywhere. He's shot everything. He's like the most interesting man in the world and uh, really cool guy. I, we've been friends online for a couple of years, and I was really pleased to be able to meet him and hang out and go shooting recently. So I know you'll enjoy that. I'm just uh, getting geared up for my workshop season, August, September, and October. Um, I'll be in uh, Colorado. I'll be in Costa Rica. I'll be along Route 66. And uh, hopefully you can join me. If you want to find out about any of those, just check out digitalphotoadventures.com or email me at rob at robnightphotography. But without further ado, here's Jay Dickman. Welcome, Jay, and thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, appreciate this very much. I uh, like, the, like the podcast format, and I think it's a great way to share relevant information with that audience. Yeah, I was, I was really pleased to meet you a few weeks ago in, in Colorado, and uh, you know, after our sort of online relationship for a couple of years, us being in sort of similar camps. Um, it's funny, I, I, I just had uh, my buddy uh, Roman Kurachek and Charles Glatzer on the show recently, and they were kind of the same way. I always have this idea that I'm going to catch up with people at shows and record interviews, but then we're always busy, we're shooting, we're doing whatever, so I always end up catching up with people when everybody's back home and you know, sitting still for a uh, minute. And that's always great. I mean, I think everyone has the intent to get those done, but yeah, my schedule is so crazy all the time that I've tried to desperately to find those openings. And when they happen, you take advantage of them. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's get, get cranking, man. You, you've been a professional photographer since way before it was the sort of accessible and affordable, anyone can do it job that we call professional photography today. Um, what got you interested in photography in the first place, and, and how did you end up being a, a professional photographer? Well, I was an English lit major in college. I actually look back further than that to, to having grown up um, late 50s, early 60s, really date myself here, but really looking at uh, coming home daily or weekly, you know, I'd come home and uh, look at National Geographic and Life magazine. Those were kind of the TV sets of the day, and not having not really being aware of how much impact those those still images were having in those magazines. Uh, I remember, you know, you'd come home and it was, when I grew up, it was the, the, the race riots going on. It was the Vietnam War. It was the moon missions. It was all these type of things. And coming home and finding those publications with those still images on it, was just excited was just exhilarating to you know and i think what got me was that intimacy of the still still moment being able to pick it up look at it put it back down it was it became so very personal um english lit major in college and somewhere in my along that path i decided to go into the visual narrative world um kind of never looked back uh first camera i had was a, a uh, Kodak Instamatic back in high school days and friends of mine had motorcycles, dirt bikes, and I couldn't afford one. So I'd go along with them to take pictures of them on their dirt bikes and I'd get the pictures back and, and just be enthralled with that frozen moment aspect of it. And a very savvy salesperson at the store where I had my pictures developed, that's an old term, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Was, was she was sharp enough to say, boy, you know, you're doing such nice work with this little Kodak Instamatic. You ought to look at this 35 millimeter camera. And 
it was a Kodak, no, it was a, uh, sorry, Pentax uh, H1A, you know, I remember the camera. And I convinced my father to, to get the thing for me for a, a birthday present. And the same thing, getting those. And when I first got the camera, I had no idea of exposure or anything else. And I figured out that if I held the camera to my eye and pressed the depth of field preview button, that when it got dark or light enough, that was about the right exposure. So my <laughs> my, <laughs> hopefully I've improved a bit since then. But um but still, getting those images back, it was just thrilling to me. And I still, and it's interesting, to this day, uh, most of my work is, is international and travel. And I, I've, at times, I get so sick of the travel, I don't want to leave my wife, I don't want to leave the house. And I go through this drill, and I pick the camera up out of the bag, and it's still this electricity that goes through me that I get to do this. It's amazing. So until if that feeling ever goes, then I have to go get a real job. I don't know what I'm going to do at that point, but but um, yeah, it's been it's it's an amazing amazing craft. Wow. So were you studying to be a journalist, or did you uh, were you just studying English in general? The intent was to become a. I wanted to get a PhD in English Lit to teach, ah. which. Through enough of a, a fear in my father, you know, oh my God, you want to be an English lit major? Then level two of the fear came with, I wanted to be a photographer, you know. So it was, <laughs> my God, those people are crazy. They're nuts. They're broke. They're, you know, it's a struggle. Well, he was right all the way around, but, but I still love what I've I've gotten to do. But yeah, my original intent was to get a degree in English and teach. Hmm. Um, Not quite I, the I, uh, the exciting world traveling uh, vocation that you ended up with, huh? It's interesting, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's but it's it's that's a really interesting question because it is and it isn't. Uh, I'm still working with the narrative, it's just a very different form. Of, it's not that different a form of narrative, really. Sure. Um, you know, photographers are storytellers. Where we are, use our images to convey that sense of place and all those other components of visual narrative. So there, it isn't that terribly different. So I do look back on what I learned as an English, English lit major as being very relevant to what I do today. Hmm, I'm sure that makes sense that, you know, once you learn to be a storyteller, you just are using different tools to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so how does that work into a job behind the camera? You find out that, that you're pretty good at this photography thing. So how does that uh, turn into uh, getting work? Well, personally, I know that I, I, I decided I want to be a photographer. I was back in Dallas, Texas at the time. And, uh, in school, um, doing working two jobs, it was a, a very uh, rough beginning for me. And uh, during that time, I, I made that decision to be a photographer. And I figured, well, the best thing to do is go talk to photographers in town. So I looked up some of the big names and different uh, genres of work in Dallas, different types of work, from commercial to editorial to to wedding people, everything else. And I called him and said, Hey, can I come by and talk to you? And I had my three print portfolio at the point and I'd show them <laughs> that my work and they'd kind of laugh and, and they'd show me their work. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is amazing. And I started filtering to the type of work I wanted to do. And, and surprise, surprise, it was that journalistic work that with, with which I'd grown up with the geographic, the life magazine, that, 
resonated with me. It was just that frozen moment aspect of of street life, of reality, what's going out on out there. It was a Cartier-Bresson, Danny Lyons, and Robert Frank type work that just astounded me. So I started honing it down. It was like, okay, well, I want to do photojournalism. I want to do editorial, reportage, documentary type work, which I think is all fairly similar or has foundations and similar components. Sure. Um, so I contacted AP and UPI, the old wire service groups then, and I contacted the Dallas Morning News, and I went to them, and they kind of laughed me off. And I went to the Dallas Times-Herald, um, and there was a photo director there, John Maziota, who looked at my work, and I think he felt sorry for me. And he said, <laughs> you know, boy, kid, you got some nice stuff there, but you need you know, we, you need to have sports photography in there. I was like, oh, huh, how do I? So I left there, and he said, come back after you get some sports in there. So. And I felt like I've always had this amazing guardian angel because um, I look back at moments in my life that were like unbelievable that I came to a certain crossroads and somehow took the right path, or at least I think I did. But I remember looking, thinking, okay, I, want, I need to be a sports photographer for a while. So where do I find a job as a sports photographer? Well, you look at the classified ads under sports photographers. You know, talk about an idiot. Naturally, of course. <laughs> so I looked in the paper, and under photographers, jobs wanted. You know, it was uh, one for photographers, and the, somebody was advertising for a sports photographer. It was this guy? Yeah, this <laughs> unbelievable. Had started a very small sports agency, sports news agency. He was doing the writing, and he needed a photographer to cover Southwest Conference sports and. Uh, some professional basketball and baseball and things like that. And he paid me $5 a game to go do these things. So I started building this portfolio and I forgot a year or two, two later, I went back to the Dallas times Herald with my sports. And the guy said, you know, John Mazziota looked at the work and said, Oh, wow. Yeah, I like this. You know, you've got some nice stuff. And, um, I said, I'll keep you in mind. So a couple of months later, I get a phone call and he said, Hey, we just had an opening. He said, Are you still interested? And I said, Oh my gosh, yeah. So he said, Well, you know, this is on Wednesday. He called, I think, and he said, Show up for work next Monday. So hung up the phone. It was like, Oh my God, did I get in so deeply over my head here? And I was, and I did another one of those moments, crossroad moments came that Friday because I had my hand on the phone getting ready to call him to tell him I couldn't do it, that it was, I was not prepared for that. And I've always wondered if I'd picked that phone up, I probably would have made the call. And, you know, who knows where my life would have gone at that point. But I did not pick up the phone, showed up Monday for work. One of the first photographers to whom I was introduced was Bob Jackson. And Bob Jackson's a photographer who took the picture of Lee Harvey Oswald being shot by Jack Ruby. Wow. The Pulitzer Prize with an image. And I knew right then I was in way over my head. <laughs> but it was also this amazing time because from the get-go, I was given assignments, three to five assignments a day, from sports to spot news to, to feature work, which are those three components of, of, of new, the newspaper world. And... The editors did not want to hear, I'm not feeling creative, I'm not in the mood, you had to produce. Right. And it was an amazing, amazing time. I mean, and the, when I first took the job at the Herald, 
it was uh, the first day I walked in. It was it was like out of a 1950s movie because it was walk into the newsroom. It was you know this huge newsroom. There were some reporters asleep at the de- their desks. There were it was an after sleepy afternoon paper uh, in Dallas. We had a morning paper and this was an afternoon paper. There were actually there was cigar smoke pall over the room. There were actually you know a couple of bottles of liquor on the desk. And it's like. This is so cool. This is just like it's supposed to be. I've made it. <laughs> I made it. And right. shortly after I got on with the Times Herald, the, the LA Times bought the paper. And they brought in Tom Johnson as our editor. And Tom called me into his office shortly afterwards and said, essentially, like, I want to tell you what we're doing. We're, we're changing this paper from an afternoon to a morning paper. We're taking on the competition, the Dallas Morning News. We're going to make this at least a regional, if not national, newspaper. And because kind of you're the young guy on the staff, we're asking you to be the on the forefront of the photography thing. So, mm-hmm. or out there. I mean, you know, because if, so I started traveling for him uh, domestically and and otherwise. Um, covering things, and it was just a really, really heady time for this 20-something-year-old photographer to be that individual responsible for defining visually and therefore mentally, because this is how we process images is with still images, to create those foundations of visual uh, attachment to our definition to what the news is for the day. So, yeah, so it's like, oh, my gosh, this was just a really, really exciting time. Wow, what an education. Just thrown right into the fire and go shoot everything. Go shoot everything and no excuses allowed, you know, and it was and it was just it was and so many of them were adrenaline creating situations that, you know, and and it was fun. I I talk about it that those and and if you, it's interesting too that most National Geographic photographers actually come from newspaper backgrounds. And I think it's because you're used to dealing with visual narrative, that storytelling process a daily basis and like i said those three components of of the newspaper world spot news feature and sports really helped define my own work as a photographer sure now were you working with um with reporters at the time or did you just go out by yourself and kind of they match the two later yes <laughs> yes, no. it was often you'd, you'd you'd go out with the writer um sometimes it, you'd just be given the assignment and you'd show up and you'd and you'd figure out okay how am i going to define it and you were able to put your own thumbprint on this visually because you were you were given an assignment and it was like okay we need a photograph of fill in the blank or at times they just send you out and say okay find a feature for tomorrow's paper and feature works are those visual snippets of life of what's happening on the streets, what's happening, you know, find that humorous moment to kind of break up the space of type on the page uh, because we are such visual creatures that they that any publication realizes that value of having that visual because we go to the visual and then once you've got them on that page, then their eyes will drift around to the stories. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so sometimes it was with a uh, sometimes it was with a reporter, sometimes it was not. Sometimes you have a very clear definition. Here we need this photograph of this event, and these people are doing this, and we want you to translate it as you see visually, or that going out to find a feature, 
or photographing the Dallas Cowboys. It was pretty cool, too, because I started photographing the Cowboys, and we'd travel with them, and you'd stay at the same hotel. So wow. it was a, yeah, it was a wonderful time. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, so that, that whole newspaper thing worked out pretty well for you, and you won the Pulitzer Prize when you were with the paper, right? Correct. And yeah, uh, for my work out of El Salvador on on the war in El Salvador. Wow. So tell me about that. How did how did you get from Dallas to El Salvador? You're covering the Southwest and now you're in El Salvador. How does that work? Well, as the Times Herald grew and it became a, a nationally prominent paper, we became very attractive to great writers and photographers across the across the US. So people were really working hard to get to the Times Herald. This was a this was a, a major outlet. Uh, they brought on a one writer named Bob Rivard who uh, with whom I worked uh, in El Salvador and, and he approached the paper with the idea of opening a Central American bureau. There's a lot of heavy news coming out of Central America. So the Times Herald decided to open a Central American bureau and kind of with that opening, they wanted to do a, a major uh, visual splash, too. So they asked if I'd be interested in going down to photograph uh, the conflict. And I uh, always say, too, that I'm not a war photographer. I'm not a nature photographer. I'm not a wildlife photographer. I'm not a landscape photographer. I'm a generalist, uh, which I think a lot of geographic people are as well. But uh, I think this visual, being a visual generalist, allows you to cover so much because you're not locked into a certain genre. But going back to it, the paper decided to open this bureau. They asked me if I'd go down there. I went down. I think I spent a total of almost three months uh, photographing on several different trips, photographing different com- – and the, the, the selection I put together for the, uh, for the Pulitzer Prize had to do with uh, death squads and election day shootout and refugee camps in in uh, Honduras and countries close to Salvador. So it did kind of call upon those three elements of looking for those, those because it was broader than strictly the war. Uh, so I put that work together, submitted it. It won the Pulitzer in 1983. Um, that obviously is a good door opener for you for other work. But this is also a business that, what you've done in the past has legs that only go so long. You know, it's what have you done for us lately? Sure. So this business is one of, of constant showing your work, you know, showing that you can do the work that's relevant to for your audience and that is applicable to today's market. So, so that's kind of the long and short of the, the Salvador thing. And it was interesting because the paper, after I won the Pulitzer, Actually, before that, even after I, I did the work in Salvador, they asked me if I'd go to Beirut and continue being a on that, that track of being a war photographer to really define it very specifically. And for a lot of reasons, I, I wanted to try other areas of photography, so I actually turned them down on that. Um, but I can certainly see, I mean, when you get into war photography, when you get into that level of work, uh, I think that adrenaline's got to be up there with heroin on its addictive mm-hmm. ability because when you get into a situation where everything is completely out of control, where it's extremely dangerous, 
and you are responsible for getting those images that define the scene and are of your style and quality, it's, it's, it's a very fine edge of photography in which you're dealing. Sure. Yeah, that's a very specific skill set, it seems like. That's not just something anybody's going to go run and do. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because El Salvador was um, was a very accessible war, and there were a couple of great articles written about it. That it was also a very dangerous war for a lot of journalists because a lot of young journalists um, saw it as a place they could they could make their mark, they could mm. cut their teeth, and they and they would go down there with not necessarily the skill set. Um, to be able to handle something, and I, I was curious how I'd do. And I had covered a lot of in my news at the Times Herald before this. I had covered many events that were riots and and events that were police events that were completely out of control, where you were in dangerous situations. So I felt I had that a, re, a relative comfort level that I could photograph this uh, while watching out, you know, watching my own back problems with El Salvador it was there it was very attractive to a lot of young aspiring journalists and photojournalists it was a cheap war to get to it was a simple it was a pretty simple flight you go to Miami then Miami to, to San Salvador and you were in the middle of the action uh, and there were a lot of, of younger journalists inexperienced journalists that were working down there that um, perhaps should have had that opportunity to to, to cut their teeth on on things back in the states, so some of them were actually liabilities. You know, you you try to travel with when you were working there with people with other journalists who, for your own safety, and you do a kind of a quick background check to see their, their comfort levels, uh, their their experience in that type of thing. So I would travel with generally other photographers or writers um, who'd had experience in those, and and we got into uh, some firefights and situations where things were happening where you did you did want to have someone that could cover your back at that point that had that experience that had that you knew could could be a safety outlet for you right and I imagine that 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 uh, you know people's comfort level would would jump out at you it wouldn't be something that you had to do too much research on you'd see when the uh, you know, when the shit came down, so to speak, what was what everybody was made of pretty quick. Exactly. That that was it. And, you know, you 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 meet in the bar at the hotel, the Camino Real or, or the Sheraton in San Salvador. And you that's where all the journalists were. And, you you know, you 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 knew certain people that were there, like Don McCullum was there as like, you know, legendary guy. And uh, uh, I think Nakwe was working down there. I can't remember for sure on that one. But. But yeah, you try to talk to those people, and and, and it was interesting because it, it's not like in the movies, you know. I I, I had two photographer uh, friends who were killed there. I had two really close calls myself, and it's not like the movies, you know. There, if you don't get shot at, and then the the, the situation builds this, you know, climax of getting shot at, and you go back to the hotel, and there's. Uh, for the guys, there's a beautiful woman waiting at the hotel with the dramatic music playing. It was yeah. very um, upbringing. It was very uh, anticlimactic almost because mm. I got into one firefight where I was shot directly at. And it was like, oh, my gosh, that 
someone just tried to kill me and you and you get out of there and, and then you know you go back to move your images and it's like okay here's what's happening next get on it yeah so you didn't have time to reflect and time to uh, to write your memoirs about the fantastic the, the emotional event that just happened you just you were on to the next thing so sure wow it was an eye-opener yeah I can imagine well so you go you're in uh, El Salvador and you're working for the paper and then um, how did you end up working for National Geographic? And, and well, first of all, was that always your goal or did you think that far ahead? Well, working with the near, in my area of work, in my world of photography, geographic was, is kind of it, you know, sure. that's the one to, with whom you'd want to work. Um, I, well, the first thing I ever shot for them was in the late 1970s. It was, it was a story on Peter Jenkins who did a, story on walking across America, he'd walked into Geographic's headquarters as off the street and with his dog, Cooper, and he'd talked to the editors and said, hey, I'm going to walk across the country. And they kind of looked at him and said, well, that's really nice. But someone was you know, sharp enough to think, hmm, maybe we ought to cover our bases on this guy. So they gave him a camera. They gave him film. And he did the first half of the walk. Um, I met him in Dallas when he I was I photographed him for the Times Herald, and he'd stop in Dallas halfway through the walk to to work. I think for the winter to get more income to finish the walk. Sure. Um, hit it off with him, and he said, "Oh, you ought to contact Geographic because they're going to do part two of the walk because they published part one, and it actually ended up being one of the most popular stories the magazine ever ran." So Peter all of a sudden had this um, certain amount of relevance. <laughs> sure. So. My myself and my best friend Skeeter Hagler, who was a photographer at the paper, um, got in touch with the magazine. Magazine. They said, "Yeah, we need someone to because all they'd had at that point was Peter photographing, you know, his point of view, walking here and there, and they wanted some coverage of he and his wife Barbara at that point, who he'd met on the trip, uh, going from Dallas to Florence, Oregon. So we photographed that, and that was my first entree." into geographic, but I also really felt I wasn't ready at that point. It was a little intimidating and all this, but they ran the story and they ran the images and byline and all this. But then in 88, I started working with them and uh, Tom Kennedy, who was a director of photography and phenomenal person, was the guy who approached me. And obviously the Pulitzer helps. Sure. Uh, Tom Kennedy knew my work through uh, National Press Photographers Association days, newspaper days, uh, and he'd asked me if I'd be interested in working with a magazine. And when he first asked, I'd just been remarried at this point, and I was with somebody who I'm still with, Becky, uh, who was extremely happy to meet me, be with, and all this. And I, when he first asked, I was like, "Oh, that's incredible! My gosh, this is where I want to, you know, be." But it's also I'd heard the rumors of how tough the business was on relationships that, you know, you can be gone for months out of the year. And I was like, I, I didn't want to have to face that. I didn't want to have to make that decision. So I was very kind of stupidly arrogant in my response. I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so, unbelievable. So, so yeah. So a couple of years went by and I, from the El Salvador stuff, uh, I'd submitted work to World Press and it won a major prize, a Golden Eye Award in World Press. And um, very fortunate that year to have won it. And 
World Press had their, I think it was their 30th anniversary. I have to check on that. But um, they were having a big uh, whoop-to-do in New York for this celebration. They they called and asked because I'd won that, the Golden Eye if I'd come up as one of their representatives to photographers to be there on hand to speak to the media. So went there. My Becky went with me, and Tom Kennedy was there, and they had a big dinner that night. And uh, Becky and I were kind of watching all the young photographers trying to get in, in Tom's vision, you know, to say, sure. here I am, you know, and it's like, oh, that's cool. And I was still thinking, you know, boy, I'd love to work with them someday, but I, I don't want to approach him, sound obnoxious. But Tom came up to me and said, hey, would you sit with us for dinner? So we did. And he repeated the request, like, we'd love for you to work with us. And like, yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> and... <laughs> And sure enough, he ended up, uh, he called them shortly after that, a couple of years after that, and asked if I'd do a shoot for him. And I did. And it was the Yellowstone fires. And then they asked if I'd go to Papua New Guinea on a three month shoot. And that was kind of the door opener. And it went from there. Yeah. Uh, no one, no one does what they do. No one invests a photographer, no other publication really invests that deeply in the photographer, giving them that much uh, freedom, rope to hang yourself with, everything sure. to um, to get the story done correctly. Nice. So is it, is, I mean, are the rumors true? You basically, you get the story and you say, this is what I need and it's there waiting for you and all that wonderful stuff? They give you all the support you need as a photographer to get the job done. Um they are they there's an amazing group to work with no one gives you that support like that sure. um i cannot have you know, one would never abuse that privilege because they are unique in this publishing world but they really do give you or give you the support if if it's valid if it's needed to get that story done sure you know out of your contract which let's say you have a th- let's say you have a 3 month contract on a story um, probably 60 to 80% of that time is research. And that's one reason photographers love working with a magazine too, because you are, you are, you are creating that foundation of information so that when you, that research, so that when you get in the field, you are as prepared as you can be. And, but you also have that ability to possibly, you know, in the field, change the direction of of your own coverage a bit if you feel like it's opened up another not opened up but if if photo opportunities have come along that you may spin off a little bit from what you walked out of the door of the geographic with so but um it comes down to the to that to the story conference or to the um interim show and the final show when you present present those bodies of work to them and hopefully they check it off and send you back out in the field to, to finish it and come back in. And um, yeah, it's it's an amazing process. Wow! And so you're still with the same wife. So obviously that that kind of worked out. Did it Did it affect your relationship like you had feared that it would? It's a this business is tough on relationships. It really is. Um, and my wife Becky and I just realized years ago when we got into it into our relationship and decided to go into the business that this is what we do this is our life um i'm not demeaning anyone but it's funny when i hear friends of ours talk about oh you know my husband or my wife is going to be gone for three days how how am i going to survive it and it's like (laughs) 
you know, the first shoot I did, the first big shoot for him I did was three months. Yeah. And and six weeks of it, I was completely incommunicado. I was on a uh, expedition deep into the rainforest in New Guinea into an area that had never been explored before. So we just decided that this is what we do. It's uh, it is a very tough business on relationships um, because you can be gone significant amount of time. Even today, I'm working a lot with geographic expeditions and their workshops and their adventures, um, which is still I'm, I get to talk about photography, which I love to do, and but I get to shoot heavily too. Uh, my work goes into my agency's geographic image collection and my other agency, Corvus. Um, but last year. I was I was out of country more than I was here. Wow. So it still is a tough and but she gets to go with me sometimes. But having said that, I'm not a particularly pleasant individual to be with when it's the early part of an assignment, especially because my focus is on the story. It's on getting that pulling it together. Right. Um but yeah, it's a but it's it's yeah, it's just like I said, we we've realized that this is our world. This is what we do, and we do our best to make it work for us. And we've raised two kids out of out of this relationship too. Um, both, and this is one reason we've put up with the travel is they and my work because at times they've gotten to go with me um, later in assignments, uh, kind of with that idea that we wanted to give let the business provide to them that broader worldview of things than maybe just kept within the boundaries of, of our country. Right. So, yeah. So it's, it's worked for us. Yeah. That makes a big difference. I have two young kids and, and I'm, uh, I'm in that boat where I don't take longer assignments a lot of the times because I don't want to be away from my, my one year old and my three year old for weeks at a time. But even when I go away for a week, I think the trade-off for us, for my wife and I, is that when I am at home, I'm home for dinner every night, and I spend more time with my kids than a lot of people do that work a regular nine-to-five job. So we try to balance it that way. Um, no, I totally agree. When I'm when, and when I'm home, I'm home to the point where I I've started kind of getting in the way, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> because it is a. But when I and. The kids, when we when they were in school, when they were growing, they're in their twenties now. My younger kids, uh, I've got an older kid too. I was married before, uh, but uh, yeah, when I'm home, it's just like I'm very seriously home for. I'm home now for about a month, which I'm just reveling in. Just oh my gosh, I get to sleep late in the morning and wake up with I've got something to do, and um, but then you start kind of getting itchy feet. Sure. A sure. few weeks into it, and you know, once you get back out in the field and you pick that camera up, it's just that magical thing. Yeah, yep. and that's what I love about this business is that that panorama, that vista in front of the camera is always changing, and that's what I love about this type of work is it it's never it it really isn't redundant. You know, you're always looking for that, and I think that that's and that's an approach I've tried to always use. In all these different, and my work consists of doing a little of every kind of work, and that's what I love about it. And I've tried to always kind of apply that idea that every situation has its best picture, regardless. And by using that criteria, I think it forces you as a photographer to really uh, up the quality of your work. Absolutely. Up, up, and 
and I'm, I'm very objective about my work, man, if it sucks, it sucks. And when you get that moment where it works, it is, this is a great, this is a wonderful manic depressives business because when it's, when things are cooking, when it's happening, you get, you press that shutter film days or digital, you pretty much knew it when you got that moment. And it is so exhilarating. And when you lose that moment or you miss that moment, it's like, I'm going to go work flipping hamburgers somewhere. I'm sick of this. I hate it, (laughs) but it's, 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 it's a, it's, it's not work. You know, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, it's you, you know, you know what it's like, you know, and it's just, it's, it's an amazing craft. Sure. Yeah. Well, people, yeah. I was, uh, you know, I, it's maybe not a surprise. I was in the tattoo business for 25 years and people would tell me, well, you would never, you would never quit doing this to, to do photography, would you? And I'm like, well, let's see, I could sit in the same room doing the same thing five days a week, or I could do something different every day, wherever I want to in the world, really like what? Where's, where's the hard decision there? <laughs> like, of course I would, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You know, and it's just, and it's people, you know, people ask me like, well, are you, do you try to get your kids to go in this business? Like, no, because you've got to have the drive. That's, you know, this is a tough enough business today. And if you don't love it and if there's no question about it, you can't do it. Sure. You know, I think our kids enjoy taking pictures, but they're not driven by it. And you just so it's like no way would I ever suggest to them this is the world in which you should work. Right. But yeah, I this is you know I, I look at the, the the extremes of what I've gotten to do. And one of the presentations, I'll do a series of images from a shoot I did on the Amazon and the rainforest basin, and then three weeks later, I show. I mean, then I show a group of images that I shot less than three weeks later in the Arctic. So that extreme <laughs> of this is, is amazing. Sure. And even, and those newspaper days, the same thing, that extreme of what you got to do was, and is incredible. Right. Well, how was your work different today than it was say, even, I imagine even 10 years ago was different as far as, you know, the assignments that you do and, and, you know, how you earn a living. How is that different today? Well, the assignment world is tough today. Boy, I mean, I, I, it's the business, the, the publishing world has a lot of problems and it has to do with uh, dropping circulation numbers. Um, and every publication is trying to figure out how to get uh, electronic representation, you know, on, on iPad or on the computer with revenue generation. That's a big one. There was a great article in New York Times a couple of years ago, an op-ed piece that we need to reinvent the internet because it got off on the wrong foot. It got off on the, with the expectation that everything should be free. Mm. And everybody's having that struggle of how do you get an audience to pay when you've got a whole new audience coming up with the idea that through RSS readers and all this, that I can just harvest, I can aggregate my news for free. Um, but you're also starting to see a, uh, and, and there's a big difference between a journalist and someone who's purely a blogger, journalist has a training in the background and the and the uh, hopefully the refinement to make those decisions as to what's relevant and what's fabricated or what's not relevant. So there is a re- you know I still think there's an absolute need for journalists out there in that news gathering world. But um, from blue, from dropping circulations to the digital technology, uh, when digital came on. 
I, I give it to myself that I and myself and a lot of other photographers were savvy enough from the get go to realize this is the future. This is where this is going. And I jumped on board 150 uh, percent. The camera company that with whom I'm from with whom I'm sponsored, which is Olympus, gave me their roadmap years ago. And their 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 intent was to go back to a small format to a smaller footprint of equipment, which I absolutely love. Um, best camera to have is the one that's in your hands when you need it. Yep. And these cameras I'm dealing with, I know the same ones you're dealing with, are so small and light that it's with me when I need it. So the, the technology's changed, but I also think the technology has changed to the empowerment component for the photographer. I think this is a technology digital that totally empowers you as a photographer in, in journalistic and editorial work you cannot manipulate remove and or add or or harshly change images and that's what i find is part of the appealing uh challenge on this within that dynamic that it's up to you to make the image come together uh, you know that that term i'll fix it post is like fingernails on the blackboard mm, yeah to me so that challenge is to get the image so close that when you you're when you're you're essentially just making corrections on shadow highlight this type of thing but i really do think the technology um has been huge but it's also opened it up to everybody's a photographer today sure uh, which is one of the reasons our business is uh, is struggling because uh, and and with internet use and and people borrowing images on the internet to use and to share them how do you police that how do you manage that so so yeah so my world has become a lot of like i said a little while ago uh, working with the national geographic on their expeditions and their workshops and their uh adventures as a uh, lecturer as a as a one of their experts providing input to these travelers on board um for things photographic. Like I said, I still get to shoot. So for me, again, I look back, it's like, huh, some that guardian angel's still looking out for me because I still am doing what I get to what I love getting to do. Right. Well and you mentioned that, you know, everybody is a travel photographer. You know, everybody's got an Instagram account or they're putting pictures on their Facebook. And even in the the travel blogging industry where people used to maybe license images of where they're going. Now everybody's just got a, a DSLR and they'll take their own pictures for their travel blogs. And of course, some of them are, are okay. And some of the pictures just aren't very good, but um, they're just there to support their, their written account of where they're going. Right. Um, what do you do to, to differentiate your work from that sort of, um, I don't know, just overabundance of, of imagery from all over the world? Well, I do that thing in my talk sometimes where I mention, you know, 9-11 or your first birthday or the Iraq War, or the Vietnam War, or your, your your first pet. And the point is that it brings up a still image. That's how we think. That's how we process. I love film. I love video. But the mental process of recall is not a linear event of starting a video clip and ending the clip. It's that still image. So having that powerful image in a story or a blog is going to make one recall, oh, wow, you know, well, Rob was in 
Hanoi, and he had this amazing photograph of downtown Hanoi, and that may define and be that point of recall for you as a reader of this blog. And then what that's going to do is if you have that powerful image, you're going to have people coming back because of that powerful image. It's it's astounding because we live in the most sophisticated time ever in terms of visuals. You know, we're bombarded on a daily basis with high-end imagery and advertisements and in movies and in National Geographic. And then you go to the other extreme and you, you see a lot of stuff posted on social media sites, which is not strong photography. It is just, it's a snapshot. It's an image that speaks to only those in the image and has no voice beyond and has no memory beyond that. No one will recall that image as a, as a defining component of that place. But that powerful image, which is a photograph, which speaks on many levels to many different people in different languages, because photography is an international language, that can become that image that we recall whether you ask it to be recalled or not. And that's going to be the power of having that stronger imagery with accompanying your blog on your place or your your life event or whatever versus that throwaway image you know I, I mentioned that that Jonathan Good writes this great uh, he's a blogger writes this great piece and he did that thing on how many photographs have ever been made mm. and his point was that from 1826 when photography was, was invented to 1900 in that 70 74 year span that we today in the social media world and the uh, photo sharing sites, we share more images in about two minutes than in that 74-year span. That's unbelievable. And how many of those images do you recall? Right. Not that many. Not many. That's the, not many, and that's the power of a photograph, is that it's going to be embedded up here. It's going to be stuck in your memory. It's going to be that that image will be what, will be dragged out instantaneously from your your memory when you recall a certain place or time. Right. So that's that's the argument for powerful photography that it's a photograph instead of a snapshot. Cool. That that is a fantastic place to move towards the end on. Um, I really appreciate you being here, man. I'm gonna hit you with my my usual five questions to wrap up the episode. So what uh, what's your current photo gear setup look like and how has that changed in the last year? What I'm using, uh, here we go, on my soapbox, I use the Olympus EM-1. Uh, I think they're going the right direction completely. Um, they use the Micro Four Thirds uh, sensor, which was a, a development of the Four Thirds sensors from digital uh, Olympus digital days. Um, what's happening with this is the, the, the sophistication and the maturation of the sensors is so amazing that the the quality difference between that and a full-size sensor is minimal. And the software that you have, those shadow highlights tools to bring those things back, when you get that large, and I print up to 30 by 40 inch prints off this thing, and they look amazing, and I am a good printer. Um, and I have high, high quality criteria for my prints because I do it for galleries and for, for sales. Um, what's so wonderful about it is what could have been argued about that sensor five or eight or ten years ago that you had noise issues, you had dynamic range issues. Those arguments are almost a wash now, completely. And 
as I said a long time ago in this interview, what's the best camera to have? It's the one that's in your hands when you need it. And what I love that Olympus is doing is, and others within this Micro Four Thirds consortium, is they've locked into this smaller sensor, which means smaller lenses too, to get the visual equivalent. You know, I hear the argument, well, you know, I need a full-size sensor versus the Micro Four Thirds sensor. Well, if one's going to subscribe to that theory, then you really should think about a medium format sensor because that's better still than that full size sensor. Well, wait a minute, let's wash that out. Let's go to a phase one back or a four by five sensor because it's going to be better still. Every camera is a compromise, period. You find, so I, what I suggest to people in buying equipment is you define your output. What is your maximum output you're going to do and what type of work you're going to do and let that define your system. Almost all my work is international travel, and I want a small footprint, small bag of equipment. Um, just today, uh, this is back in June we're talking, but there was a piece on the uh, internet on news today that International Airline Traveler Association is suggesting downsizing carry-on bags by almost two and a half inches more. So I don't, I'm not going to ship my equipment under a plane. So... And when you travel internationally, all bets are off that you can claim, well, this fits international standards. There are none, realistically. So my equipment goes on the camp, on the plane with me. My equipment's got to be extremely high quality, extremely fast, uh, and compact and portable. And that's what this Olympus equipment does for me. Yep. I know. (laughs) Preaching to the choir. Preaching to the choir. Yeah, I know. People, like you said, that full-size sensor, a quote, full-size sensor, it's all relative. Yeah. Um, And I mentioned, uh, I'll mention it again so you'll remember to go look at um, Zach Arias' video about crop versus full frame. Uh, You would would really enjoy that. It's funny. I will check it out. Um, Okay, so uh, do you have any rituals on the road to make your hotel room feel like a home away from home? Well, that's the interesting thing about this technology. At night, my hotel rooms, my hotel room almost always looks like a scene out of the final scene out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The amount of lights from the chargers all over my room. It's just, <laughs> but I've I've kind of whittled it down pretty well. I've got a pretty compact uh, travel system. Um, it's pretty much based on what I can get into my backpack and my travel uh, my camera case. I carry a couple of you know small short extension cords with USB chargers built into them. Uh, carry one or two uh, converters, adapters, not converters, because everything is multi voltage today. Mm-hmm. But with this one, and often what I'll do is I'll just piggy ta- uh, uh, piggyback these uh, two short extension cords together. So I've got my one con- uh, adapter, plug it into the, the appropriate international outlet in the room and then plug my uh, little it's a mon made by monster little short extension cord plug the other one into that then i've got five or six extension cord places it's a 14 gauge uh wire on it so it handles a 220 voltage well nice um and i always carry you know i have redundancy is the big one here too everything is backed up i've got ba- i've two card readers in addition to the one on my laptop I carry a small RAID made by CRU Dataport um, that's bus-powered, which to me is great because I can work in the field, and I won't go into the whole RAID discussion. It's 
R-A-I-D, if any listeners are interested in looking it up, but it copies two, two discs simultaneously seen as one um, with the idea that chances of failure on two discs at once is almost impossible. If, if your listeners go away with anything on this, it's back up your work. You know, I don't know if I mentioned that, back up your work, because uh, the chances of hard drive failure is, are 100%. Hard drive is going to fail one minute from now, eight years from now, it's going to fail. Yeah, so redundancy yeah. and that, I mean, that's a whole program we could devote to that is uh, the workflow aspect, which is huge and something I talk about in uh, seminars. But redundancy, small, compact, lightweight, um, I use Lexar cards. I'm a fan of theirs. I think they're fantastic. I use their highest speed ones. Um, some photographers use that. The memory is becoming so inexpensive. They'll use their their capture card as one form of backup, one form of those three forms of backup before you format or before you start shooting again. So these are rules that I really adhere to as much as I can. So it's compact, small, uh, redundant, and backup. Gotcha. Cool. Well, from a photography standpoint, what's your favorite place you've visited lately? Boy, you always get that question. Um, I think that my favorite place is home. But if you're talking about on the road, it's, it's and I heard, I'll have to attribute this to somebody else. I wish I'd thought of it, but when asked their favorite place, their answer was the next place. Because um, it's almost, you have to almost give criteria you almost have to give me a filter sure are you speaking culturally are you speaking geographically are you speaking geologically are you speaking from food and i and because i'll start off on one oh my gosh the tapuis of southeast venezuela are amazing they're oh my god it's incredible but let me tell you about the food in this small village in italy that oh my god and then <laughs> and culturally you know like i was just in borneo or i was in uh, uh, namibia and working with bushman people so it's it's all over the place. So there's various components of each shoot that you, that I just like the still image that I can recall immediately and the physical memory of places that I've been to. Um, I even keep over the years, I've kept a journal, um, from each place, care little small legal pads and just keep a written journal. And it's, it's really, I'm a visual person, but I almost do it for our kids because I, I wish my parents had done that mm. over the years and just to have that touchstone. But it's amazing picking up these journals and I'll start to look at it and it's an imme immediate physical callback to that place. I, I can remember the smells, the odors, everything else. Yeah. So it's a tough one to answer quickly, but uh, every place is wonderful. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that's an interesting point about the journal because a lot of people, I think, keep notes via you know facebook or their their smartphone or something like that and to have a physical a book with pieces of paper in it that you've written on by hand it, it makes a big difference when you like you said you pick that book up and you remember all the places that you've been absolutely i just finished rereading the book endurance about shackleton's oh yeah uh, antarctica trek and my god it's just amazing and the writer of the book even talks in the preface about getting to pick up the journals mm. and the fact that they're oil laden and they're charred and they're you could see where they were saturated all those become those components of that physical memory like it, it takes you back yeah i'm a i'm a complete geek i love the technical world i love this but I also see that incredible power 
in the visual and also in those written words on a piece of paper. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's talk about next. Where, where are you looking forward to visiting and uh, shooting later this year? Well, I've got my I've got a workshop in Dubois, Wyoming, three of them this summer, actually, for National Geographic. Uh, I'm going to be in Tahiti, Cook Islands, Fiji uh, for National Geographic coming up. Uh, I've got Greenland, uh, gracious, Sri Lanka. Uh, just was in Sri Lanka a few weeks ago. Fantastic place. Um I've got I'm working with Geographic Adventures, which are wonderful, just amazing guy. Jonathan Irish, who's a wonderful photographer in his own right, uh heads up adventures and they do these ten day, two week small group, um, can be quite uh physical or not, um adventures in incredible places. I'm doing that's who I'm going to Sri Lanka for. I did a trekking with the Maasai for him. So Life is full, and I've got a. Uh, I've done a, several of the geographic around the world by private jet trips. You know, someone's got to do this. Jeez, step bless your these. heart. Yeah, yeah, I know it's a tough <laughs> one, isn't it? So, yeah, wow. yeah. Well, try to stay out of trouble, man. I think. Thanks so much for being on the show, Jay. I'm glad I got to catch up with you and uh, tell the listeners where they can find out more about you online. Rob, thanks. So you can look at jdeckman.net. That's my website. I also teach my own workshop series, and that's under firstlightworkshop.com. First Light Workshop, singular, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-G-H-T, workshop.com. And I've got my Where's Jay blog on there, with that, and I keep that up to date pretty much. That shows where I've been, and I hopefully bring up some interesting photo points in that, so it's not just a... Uh, ego trip, but it's hopefully talking about photography and the relevance of it and these type of things. So those two websites are where you can find me or look at uh, National Geographic Expeditions and just put in my name and you can see my my upcoming schedule on that. Great. All right. Thanks again, Jay. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Okay. And if you like what you hear on your itinerary, please tell all your friends about it and stop by iTunes and leave us some positive feedback. And don't forget to connect with me on Twitter at your itinerary. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. You've been listening to Your Itinerary with Rob Knight. Head over to thisweekinphoto.com to check out the other TWIP shows and get on our mailing list. Become a TWIP member to get exclusive benefits and member pricing on TWIP products and workshops. Start planning your next adventure, and we'll see you next week on Your Itinerary for travel and photography. Photography.